Well, welcome, Life Point. We continue in our series on the book of Matthew. Uh, in this series, we are looking at the revelation of God in the coming of Messiah as God's kingdom has come. And so Matthew is writing again from a Jewish perspective, drawing on the prophecy of the Old Testament to show us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the coming Christ of God who's come to save his people from their sins. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go there. Um, but we're going to read this together, beginning in verse 13, just to jump in here. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in, to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land, land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's a trend right now in our pop culture kind of entertainment area uh, about origin stories. Uh, we love kind of knowing these origin stories. You see this kind of throughout, like the stories of, uh, of backstories related to these pop culture entertainment areas that we enjoy. Um, these things usually come and we enjoy them because, uh, for one, they either indulge our nostalgia or uh, they inspire us just by knowing the, the backstory, if you will. Uh, and so one of the things that we found is uh, that we even like to know these origin stories of our favorite fictional characters even right now. Uh, I remember, though, uh, my own lifetime, the 1989 Batman, the forerunner to all of this Marvel stuff, right? Uh, that's the only superhero I knew of. Uh, growing up, Jack Nicholson played uh, the, the origin story of the Joker. You got to see a little bit of that. And also you see Michael Keaton portraying a little bit of Batman's origin story here as well. 
So I grew up with that. I, I remember that uh, and why that's so, such a, just a cool uh, indulgence for us today. But we often see these things coming up today in our, in our entertainment. Just this year alone, we've noticed there's backstory, origin stories from movies just alone this year. Uh, Black Widow, The Joker, just, and likely many others that you, you've seen this year alone. But why do we, why do we crave these things? Uh, and I think it's likely because of this. Story matters to us. You see, the beginnings of a story show us the formation of its full development. And so this is one of Matthew's key focus areas in his gospel account is to show us the origin story of Israel and how it is woven into the story of Messiah. And so Matthew goes to great lengths to show us how every detail of Jesus' life is foretold in the Old Testament. And here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through uh, 23, he goes to great lengths to show us this, that Jesus is God's plan of our new exodus from the slavery and tyranny of sin to life in God's kingdom. And so this section might kind of seem like just a connector narrative to kind of get to the next uh, action scene. Uh, but what we find here is this passage is in the Bible for a reason, because it has something to show us of this Messiah. Uh, specifically, it gives us three images tied to at least three prophecies that are fulfilled here that give us an image of who Jesus would be as Messiah. So I want to give you those three images here. The first one is this, that Jesus is God's agent of miraculous deliverance. Jesus is God's agent of miraculous deliverance. The first prophecy we find here in this passage is pointed out to us in verse 15. It says again that an angel comes to Joseph in the dream and he tells him to flee to Israel, or Egypt. rather, And fleeing to Egypt had many historical tie-ins and parallels for the nation of Israel but particularly Jacob and his family fleeing the famine in Genesis 46. There we find that 76 people became a nation, a nation of Israel. And Jacob's flight to Egypt was a trip that set the stage then, not only for national history and identity, but it, it became, it set the stage for, for the Exodus itself. There's numerous references here to the Exodus that Matthew's drawing on. We see here directly in verse 15, for instance, uh, that he went to Egypt to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1. Then note the immediacy by which Joseph responds in haste in verse 14. We are told that they leave in the middle of the night. They, they don't wait till morning. They don't get their stuff together. They just seem to leave immediately. Uh, this undoubtedly would have been seen as a connection to their, their response of Israel uh, leaving the Exodus uh, during the Passover upon God's deliverance. Likewise, in verses 20 through 21, uh, these would have been seen as, uh, by Matthew's readers as implied comparisons between Jesus and Moses. And there isn't anything more formative to the identity of Israel than the Exodus. It was recounted every, 
year as they told their children, and it marked the beginning of their annual calendar. And so what is Matthew telling us here in, in drawing these parallels to the Exodus? What, what he's doing is he's showing us and showing his audience that there is an Exodus deliverance that the first one pictured to us. That the, the Exodus Israel knew was actually just a foreshadowing to the true one that would come in the Messiah. You see, Jesus is the true Israel as God's unique son and the center point of identity as God's people, as God's rescued people. And just as God had delivered his people from the Egyptians, he was delivering his people from sin. And just as Israel was God's son brought out of Egypt, now Jesus is God's son being brought out of Egypt. Hear how the apostle Peter explains this in Acts chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who have come after him also proclaim these days. And then listen to how the author of Hebrews shows us Jesus is, the greater, is even greater than Moses. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the, high, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things to which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as the son over his own house, whose house we are of if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. And so what does this mean? This means that Jesus is the center point of the identity of being God's people. To be in Jesus is to be miraculously delivered from the slavery of sin and to become a people after God's own possession. God's people were never meant to be a single ethnic group, but a gathering from all people adopted with the status of the son. And so if you have the inheritance of the son, you own the farm. And that is exactly what God has called us to. And so our response is this. How will we respond to God's agent of deliverance? And there is no other adequate response than to follow him and to do so with urgency. The second image that we get from this passage is that Jesus brings an end to mournful exile and establishes the kingdom. Jesus brings an end to mournful exile and establishes the kingdom of God. The second image we're told it comes from Jeremiah's prophecy in the exile. Another formative period in the history of Egypt of Israel rather. We're told 
Jeremiah's prophecy comes from chapter 31, verse 15, of Rachel weeping for her children being fulfilled here. And so we have several things at play here. Uh, this prophecy came with a double fulfillment. Originally, it applied to the death of Rachel and childbirth in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19, on the way to Bethlehem. And then it is applied by Jeremiah in this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 15. Rachel represents then as a figurehead all Jewish mothers who are mourning the loss of the descendants that she died for in the exile. And so her grief is one that remains and cannot be consoled, the loss of life. And so Matthew tells us that this, was a pro this prophecy was for the death of the children at the hands of Herod here in Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem was established as a burial place and a place of death and sorrow. And this was how it would have been understood to Matthew's audience. And so Matthew is telling us that in the midst of a scene of immense bitter tragedy and the loss of life and mourning, God is bringing life. Is that not a message we need today? That in the middle of sorrow, God brings life. And Jeremiah's prophecy then ends with a note of coming hope. It continues in uh, chapter 31, verses 16 through 17 to say this, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord and your children shall come back to their country. So what does all this mean? It means God is going to unite his people, and there's a hope in the midst of hurt. Bethlehem is not a place of death, but it is a place of life. The king who conquered death has arrived, and there is life in the midst of death and consolation. For tears. And so what does this mean, Christian? This means for us, pain and trauma are very real. But they are temporary. And that salvation that is offered to us in Jesus is eternal. It's eternal, friend. So in the middle of whatever sorrow there may be and whatever loss there might be, look to this hope that is eternal and offered to you in Jesus. And so Matthew goes to great lengths here to show us that the story of the Messiah is woven into every detail of their history. And in the same way, it is woven into our history as well. God has entered into human history. We don't speak of an ethereal savior. We speak of one who is actually a historical being. He has entered into our human history in order to bring redemption through his own death and to break therein the power of death in his resurrection. And now mourning and death, although very real, are not the last word for those in Christ because for the Christian, resurrection life is now woven into our story. And this is the hope of this Savior who's entered history. The last image we are given here 
is that Jesus is naturally offensive. He's opposed and rejected and despised as God's humble servant. This last image is really one that we find throughout the book of Matthew. He introduces this theme early here, and that is the theme of hostility against the Messiah. It begins when Herod perceives the Messiah as a threat and wants him killed. But at the end of the narrative, we're told that there are several prophecies that are fulfilled, plural prophecies, uh, and that would be that he is a Nazarene. You see, in many Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah's lowly life of rejection is mentioned and put on display. And this is likely what uh, perhaps Matthew had in mind here when he references these prophecies, plural. The term Nazarene uh, was applied both to Jesus and to his followers, and Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. To be a Nazarene was to bear reproach in the eyes of Israel. You can find this in John chapter 1, verse 46, um, where the question is posed, can any good come out of Nazareth? You see, Jesus doesn't fit our expectations of a king, but he challenges us at every turn. Here we see Jesus was born a king, born in a humble village, and he grew up in a despised city. He didn't come into the... Uh, into this earth with pomp, but with, with reproach. He is the humble servant of God who is opposed, rejected, and despised. As Isaiah 53 puts it, verses th- beginning in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one for whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. And so here we realize that we naturally join the resistance. We are not the heroes of this passage. We join as those who resist Jesus. He's naturally offensive to us. We are enemies. Our minds and our hearts reject him in our sin. And this is what it means to be a sinner. But it's precisely the sinner that Jesus has come to save. It is precisely the center that Jesus has given his life for. And so we must realize that it is our own kingdom that Jesus has come to invade, our own hearts, our own lives. And that if he is God and that if he is king, we are accountable to him. And his claim upon our life for Jesus to be king means that I cannot be 
even of my own life, even of myself. And so the kingdom is offensive because it confronts our sin and our rebellion, but it does so with his love that we might have life. And so to join the kingdom then means we must surrender to this love of God in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is God's plan of our new exodus from the slavery and tyranny of sin to life in God's kingdom. I'm gonna end with this, that just as the origin story of Israel is woven into the Messiah story, that so too are our stories woven into this Messiah story. Because as I said earlier, your history and Galatians tells us all history finds its fulfillment in him. And so no matter if this is a season of mourning, if this is a season of wilderness, if this is a season of exile or otherwise, Jesus is king and he has come and he is coming again. And so have you trusted in this savior, in this king, to deliver from sin and mourning and death? Why not today? Why not with urgency at the moment that this message meets you right now? Will you say yes to him? And turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in him. And then is the sting of death and sin still holding you captive? It need not do so. For you have been liberated from sin. It need not hold you. Will you walk out of that in in following this king. And then, Christian, are you surrendering to the love of this king in this moment? There are many voices we hear in this moment. There are many things we are called to follow in this moment. But will we choose to follow our king? Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this gracious Savior. Thank you for this servant who's come to give his life that we might have life. Thank you for the ultimate exodus that you call us to, to be released from the bondage of slavery to sin, to see consolation in pain, life in death through the Son. And yet, our hearts naturally resist him. Today, wherever this finds us, might we say yes by your spirit to him? Why, might we follow no other voice, no other king? Might our chief allegiance lie nowhere else but in him? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.